Hey, welcome back to the Tickle of Twine podcast. Um, this week we're going to cover the Northwest Division. Um, but kind of before we jump in, I just kind of want to go over some general things. Um, the trade deadline is uh, February 8th, so we're about a week and a half away from uh, it going down. I assume there'll be some moves uh, that happen before then, but until we get there, uh, just kind of keep your eye out. Um, any moves can happen, but it looks like I'll be able to do the Northwest this week and the Pacific next week before the deadline goes down, and then we can have a full deadline podcast on the Sunday following the deadline. Um, but a couple notes. Um, obviously, um, we saw the DeMarcus Cousins injury, and I talked about the Pelicans last week, so I just kind of wanted to drop a note about that here. Um, this is going to make the Pelicans uh, pretty vulnerable um, for the rest of the season, so we'll kind of see um, how they play it, um, if they want to get be more active in the trade deadline now to get um, another piece to help fit in. Um, but it, it's it's very sad, you know, seeing a, seeing a guy who's probably playing playing as the best center in the league go down with a, an Achilles tear like that, which could or could very well, if his rehab doesn't go well, kind of sidetrack the rest of his career. Um, but hopefully he comes back better than ever. But it's, it's definitely um, it's going to make the Pelicans vulnerable, but definitely on this end wishing uh, Cousins a, a quick recovery and a, and a solid recovery. Um, also, I think it's worth mentioning, um, we've been talking about how close the trade deadline is. Um, the uh, a couple, of, There's tons of rumors flying out there, but the one that seems to be the most um, concrete is something that could happen imminently is uh, George Hill going to the Cavs in exchange for Iman Shumpert and Channing Frye. Um, that one's been talked about a couple times. Uh, specifically, Brian Winter, Windhorse has mentioned it as being on the one-yard line, so we will uh, see if that goes down. Uh, before the deadline sooner rather than later, but uh, I'd keep your ears perked up for that one. I, I'm not sure. Uh, we'll see how um, how well it plays out. I'll definitely talk about it with the Kings next week when we cover the Pacific Division, but that's definitely one trade to be on the lookout for. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to dive into the Northwest Division. Um, Northwest Division features the Utah Jazz, Denver Nuggets, Portland Trailblazers, Oklahoma City Thunder, and the Minnesota Timberwolves. And so this division actually is responsible for four of the eight Western Conference playoff teams um, as the standings currently sit of this recording. Um, so it's a pretty, it's a bit a pretty strong division. I mean, and there's there's been times this year when they could have had five of the Western Conference playoff teams, and just kind of the Jazz have just kind of hit a little bit of a skid so far, but. Still, a super strong division. We got a lot, lot to talk about. A lot of these teams could be very active in the trade uh, market coming here at the deadline. So first off, I want to start with the Jazz. Um, they're twenty-one and twenty-eight. They're they're tenth and sit about five games out of the playoffs. So they're kind of pretty far back there. Um, the Jazz kind of have been up and down so far this year as a team. Um, the they, they the skid that I'm talking about is from the uh, start of December until about January 9th. The Jazz uh, went three and thirteen over the sixteen games in that span, and that's kind of what has driven them down to where they all where they are. Um, their offense has been uh, kind of pedestrian all season. The loss of Gordon Hayward has really hurt them. Um, they've kind of losing him just l- takes away their like a playmaker, their first guy with the ball, the guy who can go create a shot for not only himself but him for others at will and so their offense is uh ranked 24th uh so far this all season um with a 105.2 rating um and again the struggles are kind of based around they just don't have a playmaker at the level of hayward uh ricky rubio has been making plays and donovan mitchell who i'll cover um and cover more in a second um has also been making plays but neither of them are, are close to being a replacement for gordon hayward and that kind of would that's kind of would get you in the position where they're at now 
Um, defensively, I'm actually surprised at how, how good the Jazz have been, um, considering they've they've had 49 games and Rudy Gobert's played in 23, so less than half of them. Um, they're still 8th in defense with a 106.4 uh, rating, um, and they're forcing the 6th highest turnover rate at 16.1% and the 7th best uh, opponent offensive rebound percentage at 23.8. Um, and the Jazz have kind of keyed their defense on... Um, Good transition defense. Um, they consistently drop drop guys rather than chasing offensive rebounds, and so that way they uh, don't give up easy points. Um, obviously, that means they don't give up get easy points by getting putbacks. But the trade off tends to favor this way, and we see more and more teams um, playing playing defense this way of just dropping guys rather than chasing offensive rebounds. And it's clearly working for the Jazz. Um, they they do try and slow slow games down. They play at one of the slower paces in the league, and that's just kind of part of how they're built. Um, but yeah. To, to talk about Donovan Mitchell, um, he's definitely been the story of the season for the Jazz. Um, he's been arguably the best rookie all season. I think I still give Ben Simmons the slight edge, but there's no denying Mitchell's productivity. He's averaging 19 points and nearly 3.5 rebounds and 3.5 assists per game. Um, and he's definitely been a surprise. Um, com- coming into the draft and kind of coming out of it, I was... I was uh, high on Mitchell. Um, I'd heard some stuff about like basically he's high character guys, hard worker, all this, all this stuff, the intangible stuff around the edges. And then when you watched film of him, um, he looked really good. Definitely looked someone who was prepared for the league, but definitely not someone I would think was going to have like this strong of an immediate impact. But because of the void left by Hayward, um, Mitchell's had the opportunity to get the balls in his hand, get the ball in his hands, and just kind of be a playmaker and and fill in what they've lost. And he's certainly done that. Um, he's got he's drawn some comparisons to like early early Wade and a little bit some early Harden comparisons. But a lot of the ones that I've seen and the ones I like best are the the early Wade comparisons. Um, their first season statistics actually line up um, almost exactly. They're they're only a couple points or a couple percentages up or down um, when you look at them right next to each other. Mitchell's been a slightly better three point shooter and a slightly better. Uh, he scored more points than Wade, about three more points per game, but. While Wade, Wade is obviously a guy to the line more than um, Donovan Mitchell has, it's just worth noting that um, he could turn into a Wade type of player. This uh, this shooting guard who can be a secondary ball handler, but's going to initiate plays. He's going to get to the rim. Um, he's going to shoot when he needs to, and just kind of do whatever he needs to do. I mean, that, that's um, he's been really fun to watch. Um, he's got he's put up a bunch of highlight re- highlight reel dunks, as well as just kind of consistently getting good shots, um, playing well, being a bulldog on defense. And um, just kind of playing hard, as hard as he can out there, and it's definitely giving the Jazz some energy and, and makes them worth watching. Um, and the star potential he's flashed has been huge. Um, it's something that the Jazz are going to need going forward, and that I'm, cer- I'm certain that the front office is happy about um, that they could hit on him as a pick. Um, just kind of when you look at their roster constru- construction and their injury woes, you know, Gobert is not nece- not 100% healthy, and he's he's been in and out all season. Um, uh, and they're still, they're still. Dante Exum is also out, and so because of that, I don't. It's going to be tough for them to fight into the playoffs. Um, they obviously, um, you know, with the Pelicans injury that I mentioned earlier, might see a snag. But the Pelicans are higher up in the standings than just kind of sitting right at the eighth spot. And uh, along with the Clippers coming on strong, the Jazz are going to have significant resistance to fight back into the playoffs. And so that that kind of puts them in that tough situation where it's like. What do we do? Do we kind of sell here at the deadline rather than buy? Kind of sell off some of our some of our better players um, or rotation guys to get assets and kind of plan for next year. Just kind of plan on building a slow rebuild, or do we double down and try to try to make the playoffs right now? Um, 
it's hard because I'm not sure there's an exactly right answer um, just because of the, the weirdness of their roster construction. You definitely have Donovan Mitchell, who's, who's a highlight real um, young kid. Um, and, but then you have Gobert, but Gobert, will, I mean, he's, his timeline is not going to fit exactly with Mitchell's timeline because of how young Mitchell is, so you kind of have to think about that. But then again, the rest of their rotation guys are, for the most part, you know, mid mid to late 20s, so you could fit in a timeline where when everyone's getting towards their late 20s and they're kind of peaking, they might be able to compete more, but what exactly is that ceiling, and that's hard to, hard to think about. Um, so they do have a variety of expiring deals, um, Derek Favors, Joe Johnson, uh, Rodney Hood isn't expiring, but he's going into restricted free agency, um, and so they've got they've got some pieces to work with if they do want to get out there and make some deals. Um, I've heard both Derek Favors um, and Rodney Hood have been mentioned in um, potential trade deals. Uh, they've definitely been rumors. Um, the Cavs might be interested in Favors. Um, I've definitely seen Hood's name attached to trade talks for a variety of different teams. Basically, anyone who wants a bench a solid bench wing has basically been like oh well maybe they'll go after Rodney Hood so um, I think it's definitely um, in the cards to see Rodney Hood moved Um, I mentioned at the top of the show that there's a George Hill deal about possibly going to the Cavs and that's apparently on the one one yard line but I've also seen seen deals where the Utah gets inserted as a third team in those deals and they actually deal favors as well over to the Cavs and either try and extract, um, whether it be Isaiah or Love or something like that, from the Cavs in exchange for sending favors over there. Um, beyond those two, um, I th- Alec Burks, Tabo Savalosha, and Jonas Schuberko are both, they both, all of them have one more year left on their deal after this year, and so they could still be moved depending on a team that's willing to commit to them for an extra year. Um, Burks and Savalosha can certainly help. Um, with uh, Gobert out, Seth has been anchoring the defense, and Burks has kind of had an up-and-down career, but has kind of been a consistent guy to kind of get some movement going on in the offense and kind of attack off the dribble. So I could definitely see not only Hood and maybe Favors, but probably Burks and Seth if the Jazz decide to go sell-sell-sell mode, kind of dealing them all away to playoff contenders or teams that want to double down and try and make the playoffs in exchange for some assets, whether they're late-round picks, maybe some early seconds, maybe a young young guy that they want to take a flyer on. Um, it's kind of all in the cards for them. And just given their ability, um, I mean, Gobert was an end-of-the-first-round pick and Mitchell was end-of-the-lottery. The Jazz front office has shown a pretty good ability to scout and make good picks, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if they go that route and try and load up on a couple and maybe hit on one or two more and, and build a team for there so to move on to the uh second team in the northwest we have the denver nuggets um the they're uh, 26 and 23 uh they're sitting at eighth they're about a game and a half ahead of the clippers um to stay in the playoff race and you know the the nuggets continue to fight um despite uh, paul Millsap's wrist injury which has kept him sidelined since about the middle of november um the nuggets are basically relying almost exclusively on their offense they've got the ninth best offense in the league um, at 109.1 rating, um, and they're, it's kind of buoyed by their strong offensive rebounding numbers. They've got a lot of guys that, that hit the glass pretty hard for them. Their second-best offensive rebounding team grabbing 29.3% of their offensive rebounds, and their defense has been pretty lackluster. It's 17th, uh, 108.4 rating, um, but they do keep other teams off the glass. They've got the fifth-best defensive um, num- number of uh, keeping offensive rebounds for the other team down. It's only 23% for teams that play them. And they also don't foul. They're the fourth best team at keep when it comes to fouling. Um, the Nuggets kind of spent uh, most of this year uh, transitioning off of Moutier and, um, and they had Jameer Nelson last year to now they're playing with um, 
Uh, they've gone exclusively to having Jamal Murray start at the one, but playing this this situation where even though they do have a starting point guard, uh, point guard Jamal Murray, he's bringing it up. Um, they initiate the offense in a variety of different ways. Murray initiates the offensive part of the time. Gary Harris also initiates it a lot, and obviously they play a ton through Nikolai Jokic and his just passing abilities, and so that kind of lets them be be flexible with how they play offense, and that's why we're, we've kind of seen them go away from, you know, a ball-dominant one, whether it be like a Ricky Rubio or a Chris Paul or something, or even like a Steph, and you see a Jamal Murray who, who functionally played off the ball basically the majority of his uh, time in college, and his first season he played off the ball more often than he played on the ball, to now being able to have Jamal Murray play point guard work, but he still has a lot of off-the-ball responsibilities because they can, they can uh, rely on Harris and Jokic to, to initiate offensively, and they can also rely on guys like uh, Wilson Chandler and Will Barton to make plays off the dribble as well and let Jamal Murray spot up. Um, uh, when it comes to continuing to fight for the playoffs, I think the Nuggets are kind of in a tough spot. Um, uh, from now until March 7th, over the next 16 games, the Nuggets only play two I only play four games against teams that are not currently in the playoffs, and this stretch includes uh, two playing the Rockets twice, playing the Spurs three times, playing the Cavs twice, and playing the Warriors. So that eight of their sixteen games are against teams that are currently in the top three of their conference, which is which is a tough ask for a team that's just kind of fighting to stay on the edge of the playoffs. Um, and just kind of with that in mind, I think it's going to be really hard for them to stay in playoff position. They basically. Um, need to uh, manage a 500 record over the stretch or they're, they're probably going to find themselves down and out. I mean, just those eight games, I mean, the Cavs have been down and they don't play defense, so those games are easier than the other the other um, six. But think about those six games, the Spurs three times, the Warriors, and the Rockets. Theoretically, the, the Nuggets could not, if they might not get any of those. And then if you don't get any of those, that leaves you in this 16-game span 0-6 right off the bat. And so you've got to win eight of the last, eight of the last 10 just to, just to fight for 500. And so I think this, this stretch is going to be make or break for them when it comes to the, to the playoffs. You know, If they're going to fight for the playoffs, do they go out on the trade deadline and get some guys to bolster their roster? You know, Maybe we'll see Millsap is, is on the timeline to get back and should be back soon. Does Millsap come back and maybe help them stay 500 during the stretch does Millsap's you know rehab take a step back and not not get where they need it to be and Millsap misses all these games and then all of a sudden you know they go what four and four and 12 during the stretch or something like that and all of a sudden they're they go from a game and a half in the playoffs to two or three or four games out of the playoffs I don't know but I think it's all it's all I mean a lot it's for a lot of teams this this next month is going to kind of be the make or break month for them but because Denver's schedule is so hard over this next month, it's it's crucial that they they at least play this next month at 500 if they want to stay in the playoff fight. Um, and like I said, coming into the trade deadline, the Nuggets are kind of like the Jazz, where they're they're in a position to kind of deal. Um, they've been mentioned in a lot of talks. Um, Barton is their only expiring deal, um, and there's been talks about him getting sent away. He's definitely a candidate to maybe go to someone like the Pelicans, or a, a wing who can slash, he can hit open shots, and he can just definitely generally play make. Um, Wilson Chandler and Darrell Arthur have also been mentioned in a lot of the rumors uh, that I've heard, um, and just as guys that the Nuggets are kind of trying to move off of. They're not sold on them long term, um, just because they're, there's guys at their positions that the Nuggets want to give more playing time to and, and, and whatnot, and so it, it wouldn't really make sense for the Nuggets to um, stay committed to them, so they're probably going to look for a way to take them. But then they also have you know, Emmanuel Moutier, who's been kind of disappointing for the Nuggets. He's been up and down in his first couple of years, and it just looks like 
um, they might look to, to move him if they want to find a team that's willing to take that wants to take a flyer on him as like a backup point guard or a third guard and just kind of see if they can rehabilitate Moutier. And then the last two guys um, are the kind of big contracts of Mason Plumlee and Kenneth Fareed. Those will be harder um, to give away, but in a deal where maybe the, the Nuggets part with Will Barton, you know, whether, even though they like Will Barton, they part with Will Barton in, an, in a deal where the other team is willing to take on Plumlee and Fareed as, or Fareed as well, so that they at least unload these long, bad contracts that they have in exchange for also giving up a good expiring contract that's also a solid contributor. So we'll kind of see how they play it. I definitely think... Um, um, I think almost certainly the Nuggets are going to be sellers at the deadline, but to what level? How, how, what, what does that mean when they're just going to be sellers? Is it going to be one or two deals? Are they going to facilitate a couple three-team deals? Are they going to swing a major deal? What will happen? Um, uh, we'll yet to see. Um, so to move on to the third team, we've got the Portland Trailblazers. Trailblazers are 27-22. and 22, uh, They're seventh. They're, they're about a game up from the Nuggets, so they're a game and a half up from the Clippers at ninth. And um, the Blazers have kind of continued uh, to play surprisingly well on defense, and that, that's kind of placed them squarely here in the thick of the playoffs. Um, their defense is top 10, um, still at 7th with a rating of 106.3. Their effective field goal percentage defense is 5th at 50.6. Um, and they're hitting the glass well up to both ends of the floor, um, grabbing 26.8% of the offensive rebounds on their end, which is good for 8th, and holding other teams to just 24.4% um, of their offensive rebounds. Um, however, the Blazers, um, the Blazers' offense is kind of getting held down by the fact that they're the worst team when it comes to shooting at the rim, only 58%. Uh, they're only making 58% of their shots at the rim, but they're 8th in shooting from the mid-range at 41% and 6th from 3 at 38%. Um, the Blazers get the fewest transition opportunities in the league and are only 26th in transition efficiency, so some of those numbers can kind of tell you why um, they're struggling so much on the offensive end um, despite their defense kind of kind of being their strength. Um, they're not getting what you would expect a team with uh, Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum to get. Um, Obviously, Damian Lillard's had a pretty solid season. He did a lot of um, fighting, you know, some public statements about how he doesn't get enough attention in Portland in order to try and uh, kind of fight his way into the uh, playoffs or into the All-Star game. And it definitely worked for him as he got named as uh, an All-Star reserve, um, despite many people thinking that probably Chris Paul or Paul George deserved it over him. Well, Paul George did, has ended up getting in because of DeMarcus Cousins' injury, but Lillard has got to be happy about that. Um, he's consistently been probably one of the better um, top 10 point guard in this league easily, and so it's good to see him kind of recognized for how, how well he does play. And even though it is Portland and they are kind of lesser on the radar because they're middling, um, he definitely deserved to be in the game, in my opinion. Um, but him and McCollum uh, still uh, combined to kind of be the engine of this team. They're one of the top five backcourts in the league. Um, but after, kind of after, once you get past the, the contributions of Lillard and McCollum, the, offensively the team kind of dies. They only have one other player um, scoring in, the du in double figures, and that's Josef Nurkic. Um, and so that, that, that's part of it. They don't really have a guy who can create, who can consistently score after these two guys. You know, in the offseason, they dealt Alan Crabb um, just because of the large contract he was on, but that, that kind of took a shooter off the floor for them. And they do have some young guys that are coming along well. Um, Pat Connington has played pretty well um, this season, and Shapaz Napier has actually kind of started to figure it out in the NBA. You know, his first couple years were in Miami um, after LeBron 
um, insisted they draft him before leaving, and he kind of struggled there. And obviously, there's probably some bad taste in the Miami front office's mouth. But he's gotten a chance here in Portland to kind of figure things out, and he's he's starting to come on well. Um, he is averaging right around nine and a half points per game, but he's been playing better and better of late. And so, um, I wouldn't be surprised if he continues to improve. And by the end of the year, he's probably averaging in double figures. Um, I think the Blazers are interesting is because when you look at them on spot, they're they're like the Nuggets and the Jazz. They do have an opportunity to make some moves um, here at the trade deadline, but I would not expect them to make a significant splash. You know, sending away one of their stars, but um, I wouldn't expect that. But both Zach Lowe on his podcast and Nate Duncan on his podcast, Zach Lowe's is the low low post. Nate Duncan's is Dunked On Basketball podcast. They both seem to suggest in kind of like mock trade deadline things that they did that they. Th- they think the Blazers could look to move uh, C.J. McCollum in a deal that would net them Kevin Love from the Cavs. Um, while this, this does make sense factually, you know, that gives the, that gives them a secondary guy that kind of pairs a little bit better with Dame, um, he's, um, and it would reunite Kevin Love with the Pacific Northwest where he grew up. Um, it's still kind of hard for me to think that the, the Trailblazers um, front office is going to get behind dealing their second best player. It's not that um, McCollum is significantly better than Love or the return wouldn't be as, as good on the investment. It's just it's just kind of a tough thing to get over. Um, but I would expect... But it, it's possible. Um, obviously, if these guys are talking about it, um, Zach Lowe and, and especially he was talking about it with Brian Windhorst, who was the Cavs insider, and Windhorst seemed to indicate that he thinks that that is also a possibility. So there's there's obviously probably interest on both time, both sides if those two, those two are talking about it with confidence. And so that is something to look out for. Um, I think that depends on how much the, the Cavs decide to move at the deadline with their recent struggles, which could be greatly. They could reinvent their roster with trades. Um but I, I, just, I don't know. I think it's a hard sell for me if I'm the Blazers to give up McCollum unless I'm getting back Love and probably some other stuff too um, just to fit with my team because I'm going to give away my second best player and it, it's, it's a hard hard thing to part with. Um, but outside of these McCollum deals, um, Maurice Harkless is on a long contract but it's kind of unper- underperformed so far this season and so I think he would be someone the Blazers would try to move if, he could, if they could find someone willing to take his contract. Um, also, they have Ed Davis as an expiring deal to move, but uh, the Blazers kind of have four guys who mainly play power forward for them, and Myers Leonard, Mo Harkless, Ed Davis, and Noah Vonley, and so the, it's kind of like a log jam they have there at the four, um, and, and that makes it hard for them to uh, figure out, like, kind of play. They have less wings because of it. Um, Aminu plays 3-4 as well. Um, when him, him and Harkless play next to each other, they kind of switch back and forth. You have all these other guys. Um, their only real other wings is, are like a... Uh, our Turner, um, and so because of that, uh, you, you have a situation where they play undersized a lot. You'll see McCollum, Lillard, and sometimes Pat Connington out there too, or something like that, or Shabazz Nate there, Napier out there too, playing with three undersized guards at a time next to you know one of their variety of four or five combos. And and so I could definitely see them trying to take one of their fours and move them for a legit wing. You know, um, it's hard because all of these teams have pieces that they want to move in division, but it's it, but in division trades are rare, so I don't think I would expect them to deal, you know, you know, Harkless for Will Barton, but you know, maybe something like that happens, or it's a three teamer and they all move their pieces different places, um, and they get back a wing. But they are certainly a team that I would expect to look for a wing to maybe just come off the bench or at least pair, so that they're not always playing undersized one through three. Um, and also uh, Zach Zach Collins has kind of been disappointing. I don't expect them to move from him so early and not give him a chance to develop but it's, it's worth noting that he's not kind of played and he's his his draft pick is becoming more and more clear the uh worst pick of the top 10 from this past uh draft 
before moving and finishing the podcast with the t- Thunder and the Timberwolves, I think it's worth noting, um, like I said, the Blazers, the Nuggets, and the Jazz are kind of all in the thick of the playoff race. The Jazz are obviously the far- farthest out, but they're all right there. They're all fighting for posi- not only uh, a spot in the playoffs, but positioning. And so the DeMarcus Cousins injury will be a significant effect on them because with Cousins out, the Pelicans are one going to be reeling and going to have to figure out how they're going to play without their, their, their stud. And two, the Pelicans are probably going to be more active in the trade deadline to try and get someone to fit in there with um, Anthony Davis so their, so their season isn't in entire wash and that, that could be the Pelicans reaching out to one of these three teams uh, or the Pelicans falling in the standings or a combination of both and so that would um, hedge how well these teams could finish in the playoffs. To move, uh, Moving on to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, the Thunder have rebounded from their slow start. Um, they're 29 and 20. Uh, they're fifth in the in the conference, and they've kind of competed with the top four in the Western Conference consistently all year. Um, and they're third legit ch- challenger in the West, in my opinion. Um, I say that, um, but that's kind of before we have to take into account the fact that uh, Andre Roberson tore his patella tendon last night and is going to be out the remainder of the season. Um, that is going to be a significantly ha- significant hamper on them, and I'll talk about it um, more. But just to kind of go over their stats, um, their collection of stars have figured out how to play together. Uh, a little bit better. The team is fifth best in the league in net rating at plus 4.2. They're top 10 in both offense and defense. On offense, they're eighth at uh, with a 109.4 rating. Um, defense, they're fifth with a, with a 105.2. They have the best offensive rebound percentage in the league. Um, they grab 31% of their own miss, misses, which is crazy. And this is basically behind uh, Steven Adams and just him being an absolute beast on the glass. Um, if you follow uh, Cleaning the Glasses website, which is where I get most of my stats, the uh, Ben Falk did a Friday column, and a majority of the column was focused on Stephen Adams and all his the moves he uses to get rebounds, not just in general, but specifically on free throw offensive rebounds, which are one of the tougher ones to grab. Definitely worth taking it, checking out. Um, Stephen Adams is probably the most underrated setter in the league, and it, it's worth just kind of looking into him. Um, and just, you know, if we were going to talk about funny social media moments, um, recently when interviewed um, after a game with them, Jimmy Butler said Stephen Adams hit him with a pick and he thought he was going to die. It was so strong. Um, you don't want to tussle with uh, Stephen Adams, that's for sure. Um, the Thunder are also forcing the most turnovers on defense. Um, Westbrook is averaging 25.5, 10 assists, and 9 0.5 rebounds a game so just right after his historic triple double averaging a triple double season he's kind of on the cusp of doing it having a second straight season with that and um he very well could do it because um the way adams plays he gets all the offensive rebounds but on defense he more clears out and lets russell and other guys get defensive rebounds to start the break and so we could very well see russell westbrook kind of tick up there so that he can maybe get it get the uh, averaging a triple double a second season in a row um, Paul George has kind of emerged as basically the perfect sidekick to Westbrook and has played really, really well efficiency-wise and is, sh- and is making 42% of his threes. Um, but like I mentioned at the top, um, Roberson tore his patella tendon last night, and that's going to be a, a significant blow for the Thunder. Roberson had basically been a, f- a perfect fifth starter to go with the closing and starting line, along with Mello, Westbrook, um, Paul George, and Steven Adams. And without him, it, it's a huge hit to them not only defensively in general, but specifically to that lineup. Because when he's uh, on the floor with that lineup, lineup they're one of the best um, defensive lineups in the league. And when he's not, they drop to one of the worst. So, and they just you just plug in a different fifth player, and so that's that's a crazy just a difference. Um, and so f- to adjust for their to his absence, they're going to have to look to make a move to kind of shore up that wing defender position. They do have Alex Abreens, Terrence Ferguson, and Jeremiah Grant. Um, 
but none of them have shown the ability to play uh, uh, defense at a level even close to where Roberson's at, and that's definitely going to be worrisome. I think his injury is going to turn the thunder from someone who is probably, as a team, are going to stand pat at the def- at the trade deadline to a team that might look to buy if they can, if they think they can facilitate maybe facilitate in a three way deal or do something where they don't have to give up significant assets, but they might be able to get a better wing defender that can kind of fit in with their scheme and what they need them to do just because um, they don't have Roberson and not having him is going to kind of hamstring them in, in the playoffs. He, 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 his presence on their team gives them a second lockdown defender along with Paul George and can let them hang with some of the top top guys in the league because they got two guys to lock up. And so I think... Um, like the Pelicans, their adjustment to, to, to his loss is going to make or break what they can do in the playoffs, whether they just get swept out of the first round or they can compete um, in the first round or they can even maybe try and steal a first-round game uh, from a uh, first-round series from someone. Uh, moving on to the final team, um, we have the Minnesota Timberwolves, who they're 32-20. and 20, uh, They're fourth in the Western Conference, and they're about a game and a half behind the Spurs. Um, Minnesota has been. Uh, this is great for the Minnesota air, uh, area. They've got the uh, uh, the Super Bowl this year, um, and now the Timberwolves are on the cusp of their first playoff appearance in 13 seasons. Um, they have the th- number third, number three ranked offense in the league uh, with a one, 113.3 rating. Um, they're also top three in turnover percentage, offensive rebound percentage, and free throw rate on offense this season. So, k- taking care of the ball, getting back their misses, and getting to the free throw line. Um, easily and often is is a good good streak to uh both bolster your offense um however their defense kind of continues to struggle they did have a seven game run in early january where it looked like their defense uh had figured it out and it was performing in the top uh top 40 percent of in the entire league they were consistently putting up good defensive numbers for those game for that seven game run and that's when everyone's like oh have they figured it out have they gotten their defense down um, since then, the defense has kind of started to regress back to what we've seen most of the season, um, and it still ranks 25th for defense. It's a 109.9 rating. Um, they've got the third worst effective field goal percentage defense at nearly 55%, just a shade under 55%. Um, and their defense mainly struggles in transition. Um, they let other teams run about 16% of the time, which is a pretty high number. And um, despite their low turnover rates on offense, when they do turn it over, um, most of their turnovers, about 70% of the time, uh, other teams transition comes on live ball steals so they're turning it over often in a live ball situation where it's a steal or a bad pass or something like that that lets the other team get out and get an easy bucket and uh that's kind of what you see dragging their defense down so so low their half court defense has been you know manageable mediocre it's, it's been fine but when you kind of let the team teams get a couple two or three four easy buckets you know easy transition buckets a game it kind of kind of shoots your defense in the foot um Despite the defensive struggles, um, Jimmy Butler has kind of just taken the reins of this team. Um, he said earlier in the year, I'm just kind of waiting, figuring out when I need to do what I got to do and how to make us better. And it looks like he's figured it out. He's kind of taking control as the best player. And he does have them playing well, you know, despite the defense they are right there. They're fourth. And they could, you know, if the Spurs slip up without Kawhi for a significant amount of time, they could very well grab the third seed um, and postpone playing the Warrior, having to play the Warriors. Um, but. Other than uh, Butler, Towns has been better. Um, Wiggins, despite the always talk, always Wiggins uh, a bust. Well, you know how how do we rate Wiggins? Is he actually good? Is he not? Um, he's played pretty well for them, and he and when Butler or Towns is off or they miss a game, Wiggins steps up to a, steps up to the plate pretty uh, easily. Um, both Tyus Jones, um, who's been playing in uh, T 
Teague's absence with injury and top Gibbs, Taj Gibson have been um, really strong for them. Um, Taj Gibson's just kind of defensive and rebounding ability make it so that uh, I had mentioned last week that the Timberwolves were one of the teams that could have hung with the Boogie AD Pelicans, but without Boogie, that makes hanging with them even easier. Um, but despite kind of the, the play for some lesser names, um, lineups without Towns or Bo- and Butler um, have been getting killed and are at a negative nine net rating. And so they do do if um, with that thought, I think the Wolves do make a move at the deadline. It'll be to shore up their bench and maybe give them a second uh, an, a score off the bench or a consistent guy to create off the bench and help their lineup who can also defend. Uh, very possibly another one of the wings. Everyone always wants wings, and so I mention wings because if you you either have wings or you need wings, there's there's no team that's few teams that are just like oh we've got plenty of wings unless you're like the Celtics or the Rockets or or maybe the Warriors. Almost any every other team is they either need wings or they have too many wings that don't fit exactly what they want. Um, um but the Wolves could definitely be a beast in the playoffs. Um, they play their intensity that. That Thibodeau brings, and especially and Butler too, um, is going to keep them in basically any game. Um, but I would watch out. Um, Tibbs still places starters an excessive amount of minutes, and at some point that's going to turn its head. It's whether it's going to be an injury or just plain fatigue. Um, its head will rear at some point, um, and that's going to either that how they handle that and what the way the way it rears its head is kind of going to determine what their what their playoffs play out like. If it's an injury, then they'll probably just kind of get swept out of the playoffs. If it's they're just super tired, maybe that they can they can push uh, a series to still five or six games against a team that's that they're outmatched by, but then end up not being able to to, to take care of it down the stretch. But we will see. Um, uh, before heading out uh, for this episode, I did want to comment on the All Stars. Um, obviously. The all-star rosters came out, not only the starters, but the reserves, and there's always a bugaboo about that, uh, you know, who snubs, all this, you know, there's the Ben Simmons, Chris Middleton, Andre Drummond got snubbed in the East, um, Paul George until he got added, Devin Booker, Chris Paul uh, got snubbed in the West, um, just always this back and forth about guys who got snubbed, guys, you know, all that, and I think um, a lot of people, you know, I think there there'd be two ways to kind of figure this out. Um, I generally was okay with the rosters. I thought the rosters were fine. I mean, there's there's obviously you can make arguments one way or the other, no matter what. But I thought the rosters, given the situation, were generally fine. Um, Lou Will was another snub in the West that I didn't mention. But I think there's kind of two fixes to this. Um, first, I think you should just combine the conferences. Um, and you just take the X amount of best players. And I say X amount because I think they should expand from 12 players per team to 15 players per team. Um, all the teams in the NBA carry 15 players. Limiting the all-star roster to 12 doesn't make sense. Um, and because of it, the all-star rosters have always been 12 on each side. And because of that, you know, back in the days when the NBA was smaller, before all the expansion, that made sense. A, a higher percentage of the league could get taken. You actually could get all the best players. Now with the league bigger, more teams, more roster slots on each team. There's not enough spots, and I definitely think if you added three to each, you know, in this scenario this year, adding three players to each conference would basically take care of the snubs. On the East, you'd get Drummond, Simmons, and Middleton phased in. Oh, you're good on snubs. On the West, you would have been able to phase in Paul, Lou Will, and George, and then when DeMarcus Cousins got injured, you can bring in Booker if that's the closest snub. And then look, the majority, the biggest misses all get taken care of if we just add three, and so... I think um, when you go to 
Um, if you could make that move and go to 30 player, the best 30 players or 15 players per conference or however you're going to do it, I think that would fix a lot of the snubs while it's not watering down the award. It's still, you're one of the best players in the league. It would just be better. We'd have less snubs. It wouldn't come down to these minute details. We wouldn't have these players angry on both sides. Um, as And then one last thing would be commenting on the teams. I think um, when it got released, like how the draft went, Steph's team versus LeBron's team, a lot of people I saw just kind of went straight for LeBron's team. Oh, they're so much better. They're so much better. Um, and then kind of as you look at it, people realize when you look at how the teams are going to match up and all that stuff, you kind of realize it's a lot closer than you expect. And I personally give this slight edge to Steph's team. Um, both teams, um, just because of the way it played out, you know, LeBron being a three and Steph being a one, I knew Steph was going to kind of come out and it looked like he was disadvantaged because of how the starter draft was going to go because LeBron had the first pick and he's the big. So if you, and I definitely thought this, the three best players to take on the starter draft were AD, um, Kevin Durant and Giannis, and LeBron was guaranteed to get two of them, and so that's what happened, and so he didn't, and that's why team people are just like, oh, he's so much better, but when you look at it, Steph had a good drafting strategy and has got a solid team too, so I think if these two teams, and now with DeMarcus down and the replacement of Paul George, if when these two teams actually play, I think it's going to be super interesting. Um, if they actually like played a series seriously, I think it would be a seven-game classic that we'd seen never before, but I'm excited um, for the All-Star weekend. Maybe they'll you know play some defense this year because of the way the teams went out, and uh, that'll make it more exciting, but it will be closer. I don't think we're going to see a blowout one way or the other, and the kind of jump to say, oh, it's definitely going to be a blowout is kind of just a little premature. So thanks for listening. Um, as always, uh, subscribe, uh, rate, and review. Um, check us out, and uh, uh, I'll talk to you guys next week.